0: But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's not really noise. This, this is the best seat in the house. It's, it's got, got fart a fart runway noise. in the front yard. This <laughs> <laughs> guys see this video of the triple uh, seven landing in the big time crosswind. Yeah, this is like uh, well, so the video is pretty cool. <laughs> and anybody who knows what do- knows what's going on here knows what the video means and doesn't mean. All right, um, it's actually wrapped up in a. Uh, it was part of a posting on. What site? Some site. I've forgotten now. What's the mm-hmm. uh, follow the link? Gizmodo. Gizmodo, Gizmodo, Gizmodo. right? Gizmodo um, um, posted this video. Um, it's a YouTube video, but they posted it, and then and then they kind of went into into exclamation mode about, oh, what a terrible landing! It was almost a crash. It was all you know. What a you know. It was just
1: wrong. You know, it was just <laughs> but there's, there's only two things about. The story in the comments. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jeff.
0: David's looking at the video right now. Yeah, Jeff, what about the comments in the video?
1: There's only two things about the comments to the video that are accurate. Yeah. One is it's a 777. The other, it's daylight.
0: Yeah, that's
2: right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So they didn't get it all wrong.
1: Yeah. 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 So. But but, no,
2: they pretty much got it all wrong. I mean, yeah,
1: yeah, I think they did. I mean, um, it, it's not an insane crosswind. An insane crosswind would be when the airplane is being blown uh, uh, off the center line of the runway, even with that kind of a crab out. And yes, it can land. It, the, the lead uh, paragraphs there, it literally, literally cannot land. No, well, that's not true oh, either. Yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, let's back just, up a step here, David. You were just watching it and gasping. Describe the video for us. What did you
2: see? Well, what we see is uh, is a uh, triple seven, at a pretty good crab angle on short, short final, uh, in in a pretty significant crosswind. That it looks to be handled very smooth and stably by the crew, Uh, but it gets down, it floats, it gets hit with a gust, and they go around. Mm -hmm. And it looks, you know, like wow. That's really close to disaster. No, I don't think Um, close to disaster is when something gets bent and everybody lives. Right? Nothing got. Nothing even touched the ground here. Yeah. Uh, These guys exercised good skills and superior judgment and went around. Yeah. Exactly. And they must
0: have had to make this decision well before we saw them, you know, start to rise.
2: Because well, given the engines spool, don't spool up, up, up time, right? Yeah. Given a spool up time of the engines, well, two and a half, three seconds. Yeah. Jeb, what do you think?
1: And, yeah. um, I think Dave hit it early on when he's when he's talked about a gust. I think they did get a gust, uh, it, just as they're about to try to kick out the crab. Um, there was a gust or something like that. That plus it, um, the way these these airplanes are being flown these days. Um, it doesn 't take that long for the engines to spool up really? they're already they 're already pretty spooled um okay. that 's why we have um landing gear we have flaps we have spoilers uh we have all this stuff hanging out in the breeze we have uh, the the uh, the um, the the nose up pitch angle and all this kind of thing so that they 're a little bit behind the the power curve already at at approach power settings and all they have to do is is hit the toga button. And everything goes to full full chat, and uh, uh, the airplane pulls out. Wait, the, wait a
0: minute! I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Toga button full chat. Toga,
1: okay. Toga take off slash go around. Okay, which is a button <laughs> on the on the throttles. Okay. Usually on the sides. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so on the, you got the T handles for the throttles. Yeah. And you're grasping them with your, your, your four fingers. Yeah. Your thumb is kind of hanging out over the edge. Okay. The button is, on, is where the thumb would be.
2: All right. Okay, okay. good. Totally. And Total there's lunch. another button Total on the Total other lunch. side in case the other guy's flying. Okay. Right. And right. what was the other
1: term you used? Would you say full chat? Full chat, which is like um, <laughs> um, firewalled. I'm, I'm got using it. Okay. A lot of other colorful terms. So that, that one's we
0: probably fly. not from the manual.
1: Full chat is not going to be a, a bold item on the in the, the uh, checklist no. okay,
0: all right, so yeah, so they so basically they just kind of cleaned up the wing as as opposed to adding power or
1: no they they cobbed they, they firewalled us I mean, yeah okay they that they, went too. To, they went to take off go around okay all right because you don't want to mess around that close to the ground Yeah. You no. don't want, oh I'll just use seventy five percent of the power I have no, we'll use it all, thank we'll you use. very much, okay um, but and they've got all these high-drag high devices, high-lift devices out. They're, they're dirty, okay? And it's a little bit of a balancing act. It's not unlike trying to you know uh, uh, land a, a small GA airplane, but it's a little bit more intense. You've got a lot more mass. Um, you, there is a slight lag when these engines uh, are asked to develop full power, mm-hmm. but not nearly what it used to be. With with turbojet engine, these are of course you know, high bypass turbofans, so they respond much more quickly.
0: Yeah, how much? Uh, it's kind of an op- funny optical illusion, but how much of a crab angle would you say this guy has? You know, as he's kind of it's hard
1: with? to tell because we're not oriented with the center line of the runway. That the camera is not pointing down the center line. The camera is probably, uh, Dave, I don't know, fifteen degrees off center line. 15, twenty maybe yeah yeah, and the and the nose of the airplane's probably another five, maybe ten on a bad day,
0: so we're up at like twenty five degrees off, you're, yeah
1: is not a big deal it, right. it, 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 they either decided not to kick out the crab, they couldn't kick out the crab, or they got that gust and decided not to bother trying to kick out the crab and and went went go around now, I do have a question in in, in one of our 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 uh uh, transport category aircraft driver listeners, mm-hmm. if I said correctly, can maybe help me out a little bit on this. And the question is, um, in, a, in clicking through this and 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 uh, looking at some other uh, um, videos involving transport category aircraft configured similarly similarly to this seven, uh, this triple seven. Why aren't we using some wing low into the wind and or a combination of the two techniques? Is there a reason for that? I, I'm, I'm just asking. I don't know. But it would seem like a little bit of wing low into the wind would help minimize the crab angle necessary and um, would maybe buy us a little bit more control. I don't know. Right. I'm asking. Well, well you know, isn't this
0: this is, this is one of those questions, right? This is one of those questions. How do you fly and land in a crosswind? Do you do wing low or do you do crab angle? And this, you can get some religious discussions going you, here. From my experience, really, you
1: really can. And there are, are strong points and weak points to both arguments. Uh, there are strong points and weak and weak points to using both techniques simultaneously. Um, I personally try to use the wing low uh, at least down final yeah. approach. I'll I'll crab. Um, I'll let it crab just fine when I'm, you know, five miles out on final or something. Um, but uh, when I get down low, I'm I've got to wing low into the wind.
2: Right, David, you were trying to jump in there. Well, I was going to point out something in the video here that I think makes it difficult for us to judge some of this. What's that? What's that? Hmm? Well, if you if you start the video rolling and you get into four, five, six seconds into the video, and stop it. And take a look at the angle on the landing gear. Mm-hmm. There's some distortion coming in into play here from the from it being video and the frame rate that makes the landing gear on the on this airplane look like that they're tilted to the to the right yeah. wing.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: and I think that plays into, into a little bit of what we, of our difficulty in judging what kind of angle this thing's at. Because when it gets down close to the runway, and just as he starts to spool up the engine, he uh, right at twelve seconds, uh-huh. you start to see jet blast on the ground, right. He looks right. like he's at a pretty damn good angle off the center line right there. Yeah, that's right. Because is. that's the point at which he's applying power and starting to go around, uh, and it takes a little time for inertia to be uh, uh, to be reversed on this. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, that's that's the other thing. I mean, they had to do this at, a, at an altitude at a point at which. The, the aircraft's inertia could be reversed. That's a very good point, but yeah, you, you, and Dave's right. You, you get down to that you know, like eleven, twelve, thirteen second mark, um, where they've they've hit the toga button, so to speak, and uh, the nose comes up a little bit too.
2: Yeah, yeah, and the right wings, the right wings, it's, it has been just a little bit lower than the uh-huh. left wing uh-huh. through the last hundred feet or so. Uh-huh. Which makes me wonder if we're not seeing both techniques at play at once well, here. Well,
1: the, the wind—the wind is clearly from the port side of the airplane, uh, and you're talking about you're, you're talking about the the uh, the yeah. uh, the downwind wing as opposed to the upwind wing that's being certain- down. And that's that's yeah, why that the the downwind wing is down is again I think part of the gust. The deal.
2: gust, yeah, right. That's what I would um, guess.
1: But. Uh,
2: I think he was pretty much well out of rudder travel.
1: That's what I'm thinking, too, is, is uh, um, why we didn't see a pulse, why we didn't see the, the, them attempt to straighten the nose out, I don't know. There, was, yeah, there, he, was, there wasn't a pulse on the rudder to, to tr- try to bring the nose around and align it with the center line. There, there wasn't really any rudder input that I could see.
0: I think he made the decision before he reached the point where he would yeah. have kicked it straight. I, yeah. I just, oh, yeah, way I think before. So I think well, so, and
2: he too. climbed out. He maintained that crab angle on climb out he, he because he wanted to main, mm-hmm. maintain runway heading on his
1: mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. But all the all the talk about this being a, a, a close call and, and – uh, um um the the one one guy says uh looks terrifying well no it doesn't I know. They were give really, me a break i know i know dude if, you, if you, go out go sit at an airport someday or or better yet go with a friend on a gusty day in in his or her own airplane um <laughs> it, this is not terrifying it's it's normal operations it's it's the same as as trying to 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 um, um, tack a uh, sailboat downwind. It's, it's, it's routine. Yeah. It yeah. is routine. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Now, you want
2: to see something I think it's really telling. What's that? About the conditions. If you pick the video up at about 19 seconds and start it playing and pay close attention to the wings outboard of the flap sections, uh, from about 20 seconds through to about 25 there's discernible flex out there in those winglets and in in, in the tips of the wings uh, that I've, I've watched about six times now. And, and, and I'm pretty convinced that that isn't a video distortion like the yeah. angle of the landing gear was. Yeah. That, that's how rough air actually making that puppy flex yeah. under
1: there the was, climbing loads. There was a couple of frames there I looked at. Uh, you can just barely tell, but it looks like both wings are flexing at the same, same amount at the same time. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's some gusts involved but here. But they're
0: not flexing anything like the uh, 380 wings did.
2: No, not like they did on that landing we
0: saw at Oshkosh. That was the, uh, the uh, infamous uh, uh, Airbus 380 landing at Oshkosh about three or four years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, where he didn't manage to get it all kicked out in time, and he landed a little sideways, and... Uh, and, a, and,
2: little firmly, and, 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 well, a little firmly, but well, you know. Firmly.
0: See, that, I've heard discussion on this, and and I've heard people say that's just the way the 380 is designed. to. The wings are going to flex like that when you land. Maybe it was a little firmer than average, but... Uh,
1: no, the, wing, the wings are... It's, it's designed for the wings to flex like that when you land that hard, yes.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you're sticking with that. <laughs> well, I forget, I was asking a guy, My getting ready to make my first trip across the Atlantic in a 4.7, and was talking to the flight crew, and we're looking outside at the airplane. We walked down the aisles, you know, and they're looking outside at the wings it's through the passenger windows as they go out, because you can't see the bloody things from the cockpit, mm-hmm. and you can see the top of the wings from inside the airplane. You can't do that from outside. And uh, got to asking, you know, I said, "Boy, these those tips don't look like they're at the right angle." The wings must flex a bit for them to get into the right position for cruise flight. And it goes, oh, yeah, it's somewhere north of six feet.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And you kind of stop and you put that into perspective and go, well, let's see. It's got an engine inlet eight feet in diameter. The wings flex six feet. Jeez, yeah, man. Yeah. What well, giant you could, engineering.
0: You could really see that um, in the, uh, the, the Boeing 787 oh yeah Uh, remember i i i have this very vivid memory of that that time when it was finally taking off that last departure from oshkosh that time and right we were at the terminal we were over at the terminal building when it took off um in in that northern direction and kind of was you know turning to the west i guess as it as it departed and and we got this kind of great view of it sort of as it as it went away from us and you could just see this great big bowing of the wings i mean it was hey did you get that the bowing of the wings (laughs) <laughs> okay, it just doesn't get any better than that. Welcome, Indeed. folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace. <laughs> Generally, I'm so pleased with myself. That was I was going to say, you're a legend in your own mind. I know.
2: Pays <laughs> to be flexible. I know, huh? Uh, welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled
0: Airspace, the general aviation podcast. I'm going to be insufferable the rest of the night. I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm coming to you from UCAP World Headquarters in snowy Epping, New Hampshire, where we got our first real snow of the year here this morning, um, talking to my two good friends, Uh, Let's see now, we're not going to talk to Jeff for a while because he's just going to give us crap Boing, boing, (laughs) boing Dave Higdon's out there in Wichita, Kansas Where it's been kind of wintry a little bit Right, David? What's going on down in Wichita?
2: Well, we've had off and on Sleet and snow for several days And have yet to get more than A a sixteenth of an inch of glaze On anything, so We're lucking out yeah. Uh, But it is, they would call it Brisk Uh, I would call it cold-soaked Cool. Uh, so what it, metrics, man. I, I need to know a metric. Well, how cold is it? Well uh we're Dude, we're we're just right just now two. hovering somewhere around minus ten Celsius. So minus te- Oh, that's nothing. I just got <laughs> I'll come let me let me just say hi to Jeb first and then I'll
0: give you my my uh, sob story. <laughs> uh that other voice out there is Jeb Burnside who's talking to us from also cold and snowy, Sarasota, Florida. Um not really. You showed us that map, Jeb. That's uh the uh, and I, I had noted that before uh, that that you you literally are in set, that sort of South Central Florida Tampa ish area is like the warmest place in in North America
1: according to a friend of mine yesterday Punta Gorda which is just south of here had the warmest temperature recorded in in, in the North American continent yesterday um, but the map uh, um, Jack is is talking about for our listeners who can't really. Uh, um, understand this, visualize a map of the lower 48 and visualize what it might have looked like this morning uh, on December 9 when uh, it's freaking cold outside. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and basically everything is at least, everything in the U.S. is at least 40 or or lower except basically uh, the entire state of Florida. Yeah. The, it basically stops at the state outline. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and the further south you go down the peninsula of Florida, of course, the warmer it gets. So, yeah, I'm in shorts. I mean, in shorts and a shirt sleeve here. So, yep. yeah.
0: Yep when um i just got back from a trip to uh, calgary alberta canada
1: oh that sounds cold just
0: uh, yeah tell me about it huh. i knew it was going to be cold i didn't realize how cold back in the spring uh, listeners may remember that i visited uh, regina um saskatchewan which is the uh, provincial capital of saskatchewan which was also very cold back in uh, it was like late march or something it's like it's Re- regina not regina it is in fact regina um you can go ahead with the beavis make joke. make right your now. tongue bleed. Just yeah, not really go there. Um, yeah. So uh, I knew I was going to be cold up in that area. Um, I got to Calgary. The entire time I was in Calgary, every single morning. Excuse me. Um, I was there four four mornings, and every single morning I was there, the temperature was no warmer than minus twenty degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, minus twenty Fahrenheit. I woke up one morning at around five in the morning, and I looked uh, on my phone. I looked to see what the temperature was. And, and I, and it said, and it said minus 20. And I thought, okay, minus 20 centigrade is about zero Fahrenheit. And that makes sense. That's about right. And then I looked again and realized that it was actually minus 20 um, um, Fahrenheit. And it was actually minus 29 or something like that centigrade. I mean, it was just cold even even the people who lived up there were like freaking out about how cold it was it, it was cold
2: well the good news is when it gets to minus 40 it doesn't matter what scale you're looking at it's the same yeah we were getting
0: close man when we were out, when I was in the shuttle going to the airport to get out of there it was the on the radio they were saying minus 27 degrees and of course they were talking about centigrade up there
1: do they are they doing like a pool on this i mean do they, do they do they bet on what the <laughs> overnight low is going to be or or, uh, um, you know, anything like then in the winter, maybe get like a trip elsewhere. Yeah, no, they're,
0: I mean, on one level, they're cool with it. It's like they're used to it. This is like way, the way life works up there. But still, it was cold, 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 cold. cold. All right. Too much weather talk. Um, that's but cool I to talk about. Uh, you know what? It's not on the list. But, David, what's the weather what? supposed to be like tomorrow in Wichita? Because I saw a piece today that said that they were going to try and test
2: fly that uh, Cessna fighter jet tomorrow.
1: Right, right.
2: Right, the uh, the Scorpion. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the hang-ups is they were really, they had been shooting for today. Uh, but we had a winter storm watch uh, in the area uh, most of Sunday. Uh, we had freezing precip at times most of Sunday. It never um, accumulated to any big degree, but if you'd been flying through it, uh, particularly when it was rainy, uh, you would have accumulating, and you don't want to do a first flight in conditions no, like that. I, I'm surprised they're doing it in the winter, let alone you know any particular day. Uh, well, win- winter is a real common time for first flights because it has a lot of advantages. Uh, cold air has a lot of advantages. I, I guess, uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, but you know, cold air has its limitations when it gets mixed with moisture, and that's what we've been dealing with. Uh, it's supposed to be a little better over the next couple of days. Uh, but it's not a guarantee that the uh, conditions are going to move into the kind of ceilings that I know they want for a 90-minute initial flight. Right, right. So, So Did you get your press invite? Are you going over to uh, observe this whole thing? I did not and was not. uh, I really don't need one if I go sit over on Pawnee Avenue uh just north of their runway yeah because if current conditions prevail the wind will be out of the north tomorrow and uh so they'll be taking off right over pawnee Mm -hmm. uh but uh i'm kind of committed with a project so it's going to be touch and touch go i'm going to keep track though so you're not going to get us any
0: pictures all right well okay
2: well, that'd be the main reason for going out there is to try to get some pictures. Yeah, but, really.
0: All right. Well, um, we'll probably talk about this next time. So, uh, I'm assuming they get the flight in, because I'm, we're, it's a very
1: interesting thing to follow. It, one thing for sure if they do fly it tomorrow, it, w- it would perform rather well. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Small, How, how's light that, airplane Jeb? with two engines and Boku thrust.
1: And, and, and cold,
0: cold, cold air. air. Yeah, yeah, right. So. All right. Um, so the, uh, the the big story, or one of the big stories this past week, at least one of the most n- interesting notable stories this past week, um, somewhat out of the blue—another uh, bad uh, aviation pun—is um, that Shell, uh, the oil company, uh, suddenly announced that they have a recipe for a hundred low lead replacement. And uh, is this was it just me, or was this real? Was this a, a surprise announcement? Did we know they were looking into this?
2: Uh, no, I don't think I, well, I don't think that there was a lot of conversation in the uh, rumor mill or on the grapevine about Shell specifically being uh, at work on a Av gas replacement of its own. But come to find out, it's a, a long running and, and yeah. very well established project inside yeah. Shell. Well,
0: I, mean, I mean, Shell today doesn't they're, they're, even do AB gas,
1: right? Of course, they do. They do. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, thought I they saw
0: do. an article that said something about how they they don't currently do. Hundred
1: yeah. I, I don't. I don't know where you saw that. I, if you if you find it, I would certainly appreciate a pointer. If you go to their website, um, they talk about their their participation in the jet fuel and uh, av gas markets. Yeah. Um, look, um, it's been I think started in, in eleven and finished up um, uh, early early this year. Um, is which is the uh, unleaded av gas uh, transition. Uh, Aviation Rulemaking Committee. This was a formal, uh, quasi-public committee convened by the FAA and bringing together various industry uh, participants to talk about how we transition from where we are now to a future point at which, in which, uh, we don't have any more leaded avgas. Ab- ab- um, this is all public knowledge. This is all public information. Shell was a member of that. That, yep. uh, that arc, okay? Mm-hmm. So was, ding, 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 ExxonMobil, okay? okay? So was the American Petroleum Institute. So was Gammy. So was Swift Fuel. So was the Alphabet Soup. So was, I'm sure, a bunch of other organizations. There's nothing new there, okay? There's nothing new that um, um, the, the petroleum industry is interested in um, an unleaded ab gas. To me, what's significant here is that Shell is coming out of the closet with this. They're going public. They're saying, yes, we're working on this, um, which to me tells, says they're not only working on this, they're really looking at this as as the future, A. B, they're looking at this uh, in, in great detail and especially at the economics of what it's going to take to put an unleaded avgas out there, to transition to it, um, to transport it, to, to market it side by side, or, or at least to market it so that you can, you can top off your, your half tank of Hunter Low Lead with another half tank of, of uh, unleaded avgas, and the two will mix and, and play and, and work well together. That, to me, is the big news, that <laughs> they've be- gone public with this and, and that it's out there it's
2: a huge deal i agree yeah. with you uh and some interesting details i spent a lot of time reading this uh, shells information uh stuff that came out of piper when uh, you might remember a few weeks ago they announced that they'd just had some uh completed a successful test flight run of one of their uh one of their pa28 variants using a an unnamed company's 100 octane unleaded aviation fuel Mm -hmm. And, um, well, surprised. guess who it was? Uh, What intrigues me is that they seem to have found a really uh, relatively simple uh, answer to the issue of drop-in replacement that doesn't introduce compatibility problems Mm -hmm. by increasing the amount of an additive that's already used in aviation fuel – and taking the tetraethyl lead additive out, Mm -hmm. or not putting it in to begin with, actually. Uh, And this chemical that's already in the fuel is already known to be compatible with gaskets and seals and tubes and hoses and pump diaphragms and carburetor parts and fuel injection systems and and so forth. And they can get to the octane, the anti-knock characteristics they need by increasing how much of that they put in in place of tetraethyl lead. And it should make this puppy, if not less expensive, certainly simpler to transition to for the whole bloody pipeline. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the uh, uh, processing of the fuel, uh, the refining of it to begin with, transportation uh, to the point where they can put the additives in that they need to if they can't put them in at the point of uh, refining, uh, mixing them in transport systems, uh, and compatibility with the current infrastructure you know the trucks and the, the the fuel pumps and the tanks that are already out there in the ground or on stands being used at airports and FBOs uh that you know that that was a compatibility question with some of the other ideas as right. well so uh Man, more power to him! It's, it, it's, it, it's almost enough to make a cynic optimistic.
1: <laughs> we don't know any cynics, of course. No, 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 no. No, uh, no, no, no. Just for the
0: record, I found, I, so I found the line that, that confused me. It, it doesn't say exactly what I said, but it says something. Um, it's the second paragraph of the Abweb story. Where there's a link in the list there. Um, And uh, in in one sentence in the second paragraph says, although Shell currently doesn't directly refine piston Avgas in North America. Okay. That's the line. So that's not exactly, you know,
1: it's. And, And that doesn't mean they don't market. Uh, hundred that's right in North exactly America. right it just exactly. means i don 't refine yeah, I, I jumped to a conclusion i, I kind of this stuck in my
2: head incorrectly, so that 's what I was was reading and thinking but uh, it's like believe it or not, there are some microbreweries out there that yeah. contract out the, the the production of their own recipes because of a capacity issue, and I think Shell kind of got out of refining its own af fuel and, a long and, time ago and contracts for it.
1: And remember, you know, there's always the – just as there's an issue with lead in, in the pipelines and in the, in the uh, rail cars and in the, the tanker trucks, Right. Uh, there's got to be an issue with lead in the, in the refineries too. That's
2: right. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they transitioned to putting the lead in the product after it had been transported, which was adding to the expense because then only smaller volumes of fuel could be treated. Uh, this just takes that out of the loop altogether. Yeah. Yeah. So, what does this do to the uh, other
0: projects, programs that have been exploring a, a replacement?
1: Well, I don't think it does a whole lot. Uh, it yeah. might, it might make it difficult for them to communicate with their venture capitalists. But um, <laughs> yeah, but that's that's not nothing. <laughs> that's not nothing. Okay. <laughs> Couple of things, I, I guess you know. Roll roll this back a little bit. Um, what we know as Hunter Low Lead is also known under ASTM standard. I think it's D nine one zero. Yeah, I think that's the in okay. this article. I see that a lot. Yep. And and uh, that ASTM standard, not unlike you know the ASTM standards for light sport aircraft, for example, defines um, what, for lack of a better word, might be a fairly broad range of properties for an unleaded aviation gasoline uh, of 100 octane uh, capability. Um, There are a lot of ways you can meet that standard, just as there are a lot of ways you can meet the LSA standard. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what I think is going on here is we're going to see, and the FAA has said, we're going to look at several different fuels. We're going to evaluate them for... Um, their usability, their suitability, their compatibility, and their other ilities, um to, to uh, you know, try to come up with uh, ways that we can make this transition work. Um, and there will be another um, either there will be an amendment to or there will be another ASTM standard. I kind of think uh, maybe there won't even be an amendment. I don't know because you just meet the standard whether you use TEL or not. And you're done, okay, so to speak. There still has to be some compatibility testing. There still has to be, you know, can, can, does it mix well uh, in in a fuel tank, et cetera, et cetera, uh, with, with Hunter Lola. Um But I don't think that that really means that Swift uh, uh, or Gammy or 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 um, you know, as as I think one of the title, one of the episode titles from from way back was Uncle Jeb's Backyard Abgas. Um. I, I, as long as it meets the standard, and as long as the standard is accepted, um, I think you know. So, so feel you know, our listeners feel free to correct me. Uh, I think you're home free. It's just a matter of making sure, uh, as the FAA uh, uh, is doing, that it does in fact meet those standards, and there are no unintended consequences.
0: Yeah, David. Uh, so how long? I know that's a, there's no answer to that question, but but ballpark. I mean, this this is not something that's going to by summer, right? Obviously,
1: no. The, the FAA has outlined a, proce- a process that'll run through 2018, I believe, mm-hmm. at the earliest. And they are still interviewing; they're still gathering candidate fuels. Dave, go ahead.
2: I don't think there's anything out there that keeps this fuel from coming to market. If the FAA and the ASTM all agree that it meets the standard and it works in the airplanes, Mm -hmm. uh, that the shell can start selling this out on the market without waiting on the FAA's process to go on.
1: I I, I can think of one thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Aircraft limitations. Yes. See,
0: that's what I wonder
1: about. See, when when the aircraft says um, use only or use no less than 100 low lead in this in this engine, in this airframe, and there ain't no more hunter low led. How do you get around that? Right. So that's that's another of these these uh, huh, hadn't thought about that kind of issues that the FAA and, and this ARC that shell and ExxonMobil and, and the Alphabet Soup and, and API we're a member of that's another one of these little issues that you know how do you get around that how do you get around sure, sure. but um, does the
0: does the certification say must use 100 low lead or does it say something along the lines of must use
1: d910 fuel says so under low lead it does it, okay it, well let's 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 use the magic of the internet okay <laughs> but there, here's the hook yeah
2: is it the faa is so hot to move this and they have so much leverage in their own bureaucratic process that they can i believe find a way to write an approval for a fuel that will declare it a, yes a, a yes. dropping a, a substitute for g910 100 low lead the emphasis being fuel that has lead in it as required by the type certificates for all these different aircraft uh they can – they have it in their power to do that if they find it meets the standards. Uh, I think the thing that's going to hold it up more than anything is inertia and a little bit of institutional paranoia that we haven't tested enough after they've tested enough. Right. Uh, but if it's compatible with the transport systems and the fuel trucks and the airplanes – Uh. The other way to get around this would be a, a supplemental type certificate, which would need to be done on one airplane and then could be done on an approved model list and, and on for you know comparably equipped airplanes, which was the approach taken to get uh, low compression engines and airplanes approved to use 87-octane uh, auto gas, which is non-lead.
0: Would an STC right. be for airplanes or for engines? It had yes. to be
2: for both. Okay.
0: Jeb, did you find anything?
1: Yeah, hang on a second. Let me just make sure I'm, I'm not talking out of my hat for my change. Um, if you want to pause, you can. If you want to go around me, that's fine too. Yeah, that's fine. We'll okay, do. I'm just looking at a, a type certificate data sheet on the FAA website. This one is for, uh, uh, in, in fact, a Cirrus SR20. And it says fuel. It says 100 slash 100 low lead, uh, okay. minimum grade aviation gasoline. Now, ah, the sc- door's open. Yes. Now, that, oh, it that says doesn't
0: grade. Oh, okay. It yeah.
1: doesn't. It says 100 slash 100 low lead. Okay. So, the, the, the unleaded fuel that we're talking about here, which let's call it Jeb's backyard Avgas, um, doesn't necessarily have a rating right now. Okay, we don't know if it's 100 low lead, we don't know if it's 105 low, Uh, I'm sorry. We don't know if it's 100 UL, 100 period, or 105, we don't know yet. Okay, Um, so whatever it says there, we may or may not need a supplemental type certificate. Um, That's another part of this overall equation, and that's what the FAA... Uh, in the industry, or have been trying to, to figure out among many, many, many other questions. Now, just again, just scrolling through here uh, on the Cirrus type, type data certificate, uh, um, type certificate data sheet, I should say, uh, I don't see any such reference for the 20, the SR22 models. Um, instead, you know, they kind of reference the, um, the engine. Uh, which in this case is the uh, the tcm TSIO 550 Uh, I don't see anything here about fuel on the 22s. So um, it it could be that um, um, that's been stricken from the approval process of later model airplanes because the FAA now knows that they're going to have to change this. Interesting, maybe. Yes, it is interesting.
0: Um, I'm impressed, Jeb. Um, Uncle Jeb's backyard avgas was uh, UCap episode 134. It was uh, May of '09. That was a long time ago. But I guess you probably, you, you probably have yeah, like I get I get so few of the titles. <laughs> no, that's that not that true. That one tends to stick. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That's not true. You guys have gotten a lot of titles. Anyways, we're gonna take a break. We'll be right back. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are participating as private individuals.
1: Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work
0: with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But but you do that!
2: (laughs) We here at the Uncontrolled Airspace
0: Podcast are very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. Thank you. This is a cool thread. I came across this thread uh, on the EAA forums, and uh, I can't even remember now how it is I came across it, but uh, it's a really, really interesting discussion. Um, the, the thread begins with a... Uh, a, a traditional private pilot who was going to, uh, uh, it was getting ready to start transitioning into flying ultralights instead of like, you know, 172s and, 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 you know, archers. And he was asking the, the ultra, the ultralight folks, what were the issues? How was it different to fly this aircraft versus flying, um, the 172s? And, uh, it, it led to a very, very interesting conversation about the, uh, the differences. And, the uh, I,
2: I enjoyed this thread a lot. I don't know if you guys had a chance to look at it, but, uh, There was some interesting comments on it. There were a few of them that were overgeneralizations based on the limited experience with one or two designs that don't universally apply any more than saying that a 152 flies like all GA airplanes. Uh, And a couple of things where I really liked the analogies that they were Uh, Working on because there was some Validity to them Can you give us a couple of examples Well it was one of them where the guy was talking about uh, What he felt like Were similarities between flying a Champ and uh, uh, An ultralight And how they respond with power changes And the narrow band Between top speed and stall speed And it's like You know that's not the Widest band in the world on some GA Airplanes anyway uh, but the uh the the stick and rudder approach on a low and slow airplane like an iranka uh I think is not a bad place to start getting some transition but the thing that nobody poked at here mm-hmm. that I thought was most the most important thing to deal with is just recognition that you're flying at an extremely light wing loading. Mm-hmm. And everything, everything else comes off of that point. For example, stall speed, top speed, uh, are factors of your wing loading in all aircraft, right? But in a one fifty two, uh, you're probably flying at a wing loading of about eight, nine pounds per square foot. I'd have to look it up and do the math. When on one of these, you're probably flying at a wing loading of a pound and a half to three pounds per square foot. Mm -hmm. Well, that impacts how sensitive the aircraft is to gusts, to turbulence, uh, uh, and how it responds pitch-wise. just the fact that the puppy is so light, right? That's the thing I had always heard,
0: and and maybe this is just another expression of of what you're characterizing as. Oh, well, it wing is wing. wing. It's right. It's that. It's that, um, Ultra. I'd heard this a long, long time ago. That the way it was explained to me was that ultralights are both more draggy than. Um, than 172s, and they're also obviously less massy. They're lighter. And, and one of the results of that is that when the power is reduced, they slow down real
2: fast, a lot faster than... Hey, you're, you're right on one of the two generalizations. What's that? Universally right. Go ahead. Yeah. They're, they're lightweight, and that affects the inertia they have. So right. when you back off the power... Uh, If you back off the power enough of any aircraft, the prop begins to exert a little drag on the aircraft. Right, In a GA airplane, that can translate to you putting the nose down to keep speed up, which makes, on a fixed-pitch prop, makes the damn engine wind up faster, and you could wind up going past redline. On most of the engines in the ultralights, they're geared engines. So there's not that same windmill effect to the same degree, okay. but you do get that drag off the prop uh-huh. if you back off the power enough. Uh, but not all ultralights are drag monsters. Mm-hmm. Now, the old tube and wire braced, like the the, the granddaddy of all of them, a quicksilver, yeah. My quicksilver, favorite. and and, it, and and all of its imitators. They're drag monsters. Mm-hmm. There's no way around it. They were. They evolved out of a foot-launched hang glider that had top wires and bottom wires and a triangle bar. And they had to drag to it when they added the tubes to support the landing gear and the seats. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the mounting hardware for the engine, uh, you got lots of wires. uh everywhere, top and bottom, and some a lot of tubes down low to carry the landing gear loads. And yeah, baby, uh, it's like pushing a four-by-eight piece of plywood through the air. It only goes when you add power.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Then you've got something like the Phantom, which is uh, a cantilevered wing uh, or a similar model. I don't remember the name of it now. That has a single lower strut to brace it, and it's a streamlined cockpit, and the pilot doesn't sit out in the air like you do on a quick. And I would wager that some of those designs have actually less drag than a 150 or a 152. Mm, okay, uh, they do pretty, pretty, pretty good on on as little as you know 40 horsepower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, then you got stuff like in between, like, the, uh, like the, the, the CGS Hawk, which is a strut braced airplane, but it's got dual lower struts like most uh, Arancas, uh, but no top gear. Uh, they kind of fall in between. They're not terrible drag monsters, but they're not the cleanest birds on the ramp either. Or the Max Air Drifter, which is cleaner than a Quicksilver, but still wire braced. Mm-hmm. and does better on 28 horsepower than a quick does on 40. So the key to this that nobody seemed to talk about in my mind
0: yeah,
2: is you approach every one of these as the individual that it is, and you learn to fly at the speeds that it likes to fly, and it will treat you good and kiss you at the end of the day. <laughs> Jeff, you
1: want to jump in here? 28 horsepower? I have a lawnmower. A lawnmower. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, I've heard you talk longingly about the possibility of flying ultralights.
1: No, no, I I, I totally get that, and and it's it is a very good thread. I, I will say that I wasn't aware. I really hadn't thought about it. Um, about the uh, the I wouldn't call them aerodynamic differences, but the handling differences uh, between um, say a one fifty two, uh, a warrior. And uh, a CGS Hawk or, or something of, of the sort. Um, I'm not – I'm trying to think. Uh, I have I have st- stick time in an ultralight. I, I wasn't, you know, yanking and banking and, and um, um, you know, pulling power off and adding it back to note responsiveness and, and that kind of thing. I wasn't in the market at the time. Um, so, you know, they do fly like an airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they they each each airplane, whether it's Bonanza, 152, uh, the Triple Seven, has its own characteristics, and uh, I'm sure that uh, LSAs and ultralights all um, have you know characteristics that are uh, specific to the type. Yeah,
0: um, obviously not uh, ultralights here, but. It- brings it to my mind um jeb you have uh of some time in uh you're actually checked out in a uh, cub on floats yes and yes. and that's super, kind of a different cub. kind of like a super cub on that's kind of a different kind of configuration is there anything different about the stall characteristics the stall behavior of that aircraft
1: not really i mean you're not going because of the floats and the drag okay and the, the braces and and the wires and all that kind of thing you're not for the same power setting you're not going as fast right okay so um the engine out drill you stuff the nose because you're that much closer to uh the stall speed but that's going to be pretty much the same in in anything um uh, if you're, you know, are percentage of of the way towards towards the stall speed versus the 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 the, the cruise speed that the design cruise speed um <sighs> Not really is the quick answer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, okay. Okay.
0: David, uh, before we move on here, any other uh, th- uh, thoughts for this person who wants to know about the uh, the experience of, of transitioning from, I'll call them traditional aircraft, to uh, ultralights?
2: Oh, enjoy the experience. Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, he's he's got a couple of ideas in mind of what he wants to fly that are, 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 are nice little established airplanes. Uh, and his experience in a Challenger or an Aerolite, which are kind of different uh the AeroLite 103 and the and the Challenger uh a single uh, but uh, they're both really nice little simple airplanes that do what they're designed to do but it can open to your are you're, uh thinking up to uh a whole host of other versions of ultralights with different horsepower characteristics different flight characteristics different comfort and drag uh it, But remember, at the end of the day, anything that operates three-dimensionally requires a certain amount of respect Mm -hmm. because they're not toys. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right.
0: Jeb, you called our attention to uh this… Another forum posting. This is from the Just Bonanzas forum. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh entitled saying goodbye to an old friend. What's this article
1: about? Well, what this is about is uh is written from the point of view of a p- prospective purchaser of an airplane uh who who went to see um, uh, an airplane that was listed for sale. And um, I don't know that it's it's I certainly not Bonanza specific. Uh this happened to be written about a specific Bonanza, however. So the punchline in all this is um, um, even as much as, as we might adhere to um, uh, Dave's uh, dictum about uh, uh, flying does not subtract from your lifespan, eventually our lifespan will catch up with us. And uh, eventually one of, one of two things is going to happen. Uh, one day you'll walk out to the aircraft knowing it's your last flight. One day you'll walk out to the aircraft not knowing it's your last flight. Mm-hmm. And this, this was kind of a bittersweet uh, tale told by the prospective purchaser. Basically, the owner um, just didn't want to sell it. Uh, it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time for him to give up that particular airplane. It wasn't time for him to maybe you know, give up flying. And uh, even though it might be the, the better part of valor um, for this individual, I don't know the individual, um, but that's what this piece was about. And um, uh, obviously a well-cared-for airplane, um, well-flown uh, by its its uh, owner. But uh, on the flight, they did a little test flight. And, and on the flight, uh, the owner kind of decided he didn't want to do this anymore. He didn't want to sell the airplane. He wanted to keep it. Um, but recognized at the same time that uh, that, too, will change, uh, perhaps uh, sooner rather than later. As you know I get older and and uh, uh, think about uh you know I've been doing this a long time um, I got to thinking about uh what's going to be the last flight I make mm-hmm. and uh that's why I posted this that's all yeah
0: yeah it's it's a very it's a it's a nice story it's a like you said bittersweet story yeah. Yeah, David. I know it's different. It's certainly very different. All right. Um, you you parted with your uh, Comanche, your beloved Comanche. Anybody who listens to this podcast knows how fond yes. you speak of the Comanche, um, and and you guys parted with the Comanche for for personal business reasons. Um, you you wanted to make an investment, um, but it nevertheless, must have been traumatic to
2: to part with your airplane. Can you? It, t- every, everything that this guy talks about in in his re in his what he detected off the seller, who backed out it uh, was so easy for me to relate to uh, because it's, uh, selling selling air Comanche was a financial necessity mm-hmm. It was one of those you know handful of moments in my life I can point to me making the grown up decision as opposed to the decision I really wanted to right. and uh I, I i confess there were yeah it must have been six difficult. or seven six or seven people that I flew with that were interested in the airplane, a couple who came from out of town that uh, two or three of them uh, by the time we got on the ground and we were parted company, I kind of exhaled and went,' man, I'm glad those suckers are <laughs> <right." laughs> <laughs> yeah I did not want them to have my airplane oh well, that okay, that's interesting uh. And for me, it finally became a point where my ability to show the airplane was being challenged occasionally, actually kind of regularly. I was overselling the airplane, I was told. We'd done such extensive airframe mods to the airplane and some system changes that it so improved parts of its performance envelope that I I was being considered an overseller. You're telling me the airplane can do things that I know it can't do because the book doesn't say it can do what you say it can. Mm -hmm. So at that point, that and and time competition, we put it in the hands of a close friend of mine who's a broker, Mm -hmm. and that took it off the plate. Yeah, then they won't let you nearby, right? Yes. I didn't need to be nearby. The funny thing was that – Included in the paperwork that I gave to the broker to hand off to the buyer was my updated performance sheet for the airplane mm-hmm. take off rolls uh uh stall speed numbers, cruise settings that I had all reworked into charts about four pages worth of charts and 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 put in the pilot operating handbook that I had for the airplane uh the first buyer never paid a lot of attention to it and ten months after he bought it, uh his brand new wife decided that the airplane had to be sacrificed in order for them to make a down payment on a bigger house. And it went to a young man in Canada and he and I communicated quite extensively because he had no retract experience when he took delivery of the airplane and his insurance required him I think to get fifteen or twenty hours of dual and flying with a safety pilot who treated my performance numbers with the same lack of respect and and suspicion that I dealt with from uh, the potential buyers. Uh And I said, well, here's what you need to do. He called me up. He goes, how do I get him to let me fly these numbers? You know, we're doing these practice things and he wants me to do stalls. And well, And and approaches, and when I fly him at your speeds, he gets upset because I'm not flying the book speeds. Hand him the chart, fly the book speeds, and then go back and do it a second time and fly my speeds. See if he doesn't wake up. Mm -hmm. It was uh, really kind of fun when the guy called me back and said he had him right in his lap. He flew the numbers that you put there. He says he swears I need a pedostatic check. (laughs) (laughs) the airplane can't do this yeah uh but for me it was an adject lesson in uh the limitations of selling something you're really attached to yourself yeah so if time comes and i need to sell the house and the office that i'm working in right now and talking to you from i know better than to try to do it myself yeah well
0: right Right. And if you bring in a broker, they won't let you anywhere near the place. It's really kind of annoying. That's a whole other story.
2: Right. And we get another airplane, uh, which we still hope to do someday. Uh, I'll know right off the bat, I'm not going to be the one to sell it. Yeah.
0: Yep. Hey, finally, um, we spoke about this last episode, um, this whole sleep apnea um, medical situation. And, uh <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to make of that. Um, I'm sorry. That, I'm sorry. What were we talking about? Yeah, right. There's been a little bit of a development on this. I mean, not, and there, it's certainly not resolved by any means. But uh, um, so Congress passed a, 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 a or not. Con- I'm sorry. A committee. I'm sorry. What happened? The committee the house, reported the house
1: out. Tran- yeah, House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee reported out a bill. Um, yeah. uh, I got to. I got to click a link here. Uh, oh no, there's no link. Um, reported out a bill that would I don't know disallow or or otherwise uh, um, oppose the FAA's uh, uh, ill-conceived proposal relative to sleep apnea, um, and that's about the only real news there is. Yeah,
0: uh, Jeb, you did some research. You you dug into the NTSB records. I saw. You uh,
1: know, I, I was I was paying attention to a, a couple of threads on a on an email list and. Uh, Got a little frustrated with with some of the uh, uh, discussion, the way where it was going, because it wasn't factually correct. So I said, "Well, you know, this is stupid. Um, it's a shame we don't have some some technology we can access yeah, that, know, would, huh? that, that would that would <laughs> that would uh, you know demonstrate to us what the real numbers are here." So I went to the NTSB website and went to their online database of accidents and incidents going back to. I don't know, I think it's 1962 or something like that, maybe some, somewhere in the 60s. Now, it's not, you know, I don't know how complete their records are. More importantly, I don't know how many records there are in this database. And thirdly, I think we would have to agree that uh, obstructive sleep apnea is a relatively recent diagnosis mm-hmm. uh, in, in the uh, uh, in the scheme of things. Um so what I did was simply type in the word apnea mm-hmm. and click and click search. <laughs> oh <Yeah>. my god. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah, I I who to it, right? Yeah. Um and 34 records popped up. 34 out of what's probably thousands which right? which is at least I would think 100,000 records. Yeah. Okay. Over the 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 years uh, and keeping in mind that accidents and incidents are in this database as opposed to just accidents and/or just fatal accidents, right. whatever.
0: And, um, and how many of thir- those thirty-four were actually the probable well, cause? Says after yeah, did it, n- none of them.
1: Uh, in fact, in fact, I think let me let me go find the email I put together because I, I, I sent it to you, but I need to get it here and find it. Understand? Find it, yeah. Um, all right, so I found thirty-four um, records here. One of them uh is of the the kind of the patient zero if you will which is the uh, right. the 2 the 2009 episode involving a Mesa Airlines regional jet uh that overflew Maui this is in, again in 2009 both pilots fell asleep right. uh the captain on that flight apparently had sleep apnea so that's subtract that one okay
0: okay um
1: well be, well no we're, we're we're talking about, okay, well, let's leave that in there. Okay, okay, Yeah. okay. So then we go in, and I'm just scanning the synopses here. I'm not going and diving in, in the text of each one. Um, one of them includes the text, quote, the investigation revealed no evidence of the pilot suffering from fatigue or sleep okay. apnea. So that's so, 33. Now. That's 33, okay. Um, one of them... Another one involved the driver of a refueling truck that ran into an aircraft. <laughs> 32. Okay. Two of them involved controller errors, and the controller uh, was thought to have apnea. So that's 30. Yeah. Okay. Um, one. One. Exactly one probable cause that I found. Now I'm not saying that there aren't some others out there. Um, one probable cause finding stated contributing to the accident was the pilot's impairment from prescription medications and possible obstructive sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. There was a, a, another uh, um, accident that read the pilot. Had severe obstructive sleep apnea known to the FAA, but that in and of itself was not a factor in the accident yeah yeah okay so that 's just a quick and dirty and i 'm sure a lot more analysis could be done i 'm um, equally sure that um, many of these accidents, especially going back before obstructive sleep apnea was defined as a diagnosis many of these accidents involving fatigue ultimately might could be traced to obstructive sleep apnea. Okay, so let's you know put all the cards on the table. But the punchline here is that out of this out of just, just little quick database search, 34 accidents come up. We've eliminated four or five of them right here. Okay, so we're looking at 30 or fewer accidents potentially involving sleep apnea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um out of the, out of the, uh, the totality of, of NTSB uh, accident reports. Now, one other little thing here. Uh, except for that one um, that I described a moment ago, contributing to the accident with the pilot's impairment from prescription medications and possible obstructive sleep apnea, none of these accidents... Involve say, an airplane just, you know, fl- droning on past its its destination, droning on into the night, you know, smacking into the side of a mountain as it, you know, uh, three or four hours later. Th- these are all the usual suspects' kinds of accidents, okay? And that tells me that, really, sleep apnea is not a cause of airplanes falling out of the sky.
0: Now, having said that, well, when, 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 I'm sorry, David, I'll let you come in just a second. Let me just say this. Okay, go ahead. Uh, when, when we had this conversation last episode, one thing I didn't realize when we first started having this conversation is that um, sleep apnea has has for some time now, for many, many years now, been a disqualifying diagnosis for your third class or maybe all medicals. Um, I, I, I hadn't didn't realize. I, did, I did not know that. Yeah, I, I didn't yeah. know that either. And I only realized that a really interesting piece from uh, from a, a listener and great aviation guy, Mike Miley of uh, Chicago, right. um, one of the uh, uh, ins- the uh, the, uh, the uh, principals in uh, mytransponder.com dot com, and uh, one of our Oshkosh friends, and uh, an all around good guy and uh, great pilot, you know, enthusiast. Um, and uh, he came out um, in his blog this last week and told the story of um, his situation. He in fact has sleep apnea um, and uh, has gone through the whole uh, uh, been treat- has been treated for it, and and he didn't initially know that it was disqualifying, and as a result, he hadn't. Um, he hadn't disclosed it, and then he did finally disclose it, and then suddenly realized that he had to jump through major hoops, and he tells the story of, of what he had to go through in order to get and then keep his medical um,
2: as a result of this. So well, the, you're coming to what the big fight is here, Jack. Go ahead. What's that? Exactly. The, the big fight here isn't over whether sleep apnea is disqualifying and what the FAA uh, says about it right now. The, the big fight here is over the FAA wanting to create a What's the word I want here? A surrogate de facto diagnosis of sleep apnea based on your body mass index, right. no, your get, weight yeah. versus relative to your height. Uh, the fact that there's been uh, small associations made between body weight and uh, obstructive sleep apnea which is the worst form of it. There's sleep apnea is a, a, a layered condition. It's not just one kind. But obstructive sleep apnea, the one that supposedly causes disruption of sleep and fatigue and all that, is, what is, is a blanket disqualification based on just sleep apnea because of that. But saying, well, okay – body mass index is a precursor and often an indicator of obstructive sleep apnea in a person, so is stress on the job, so is diet, so is uh, how much you drink, Uh, so are a number of other uh, uh, human habits, if you will, that coincide. And we're talking about single-digit percentage relationships here. Right. 2 or 3% here, 1% or 2% there. Uh, The obesity link is a small percentage of the adult population, and we know that pilots are a small percentage of the adult population. So if you put those small percentages together, you're talking about a ridiculously small overlap, but suddenly the FAA wants how overweight you are to require you to go through specialist treatment, to eliminate sleep apnea as a condition,
1: well, th- they want they're using body mass index um, as as an indicator to send you off for a more thorough evaluation. Okay, right. said said more thorough evaluation to be on the order of maybe two grand. Yeah, it's expensive. Uh, it, it's expensive. A. B. Oh, it, uh, as as Dave correctly points out, there are any any number of other indicators. For sleep apnea, but body mass index is also uh, 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 has implications for other uh, health issues that aren't being looked at by the BMI index uh, trigger. Okay, I I totally get um, the need to fight back against BMI being a trigger for investigation of sleep apnea. But I'm of the, you know, uh, nuke them till they glow, screw them till they bleed mode. And it should be fought on all these fronts because if you concede any of them. Exactly. Okay. Then you're you're down the road opening yourself up for a world of hurt.
0: And so on that point, um, if you haven't already reached out to your elected representatives, um, and apparently some people have because the House committee – reported it out positively um
2: it's probably not well, it's something to remember these days the majority of our congress belong to belong to the general aviation caucus now now jab let him finish go ahead Jay, I, I think that ga caucus has greased the communications links more than anything we've seen in yeah. in, in 20 be. years
1: That, and I kind of wonder what their average BMI is. But that's a whole other Uh, topic. (laughs) But
2: I think Jeb's right on I mean, if they got away with saying BMI is a a, a precursor and an indicator of the possibility that you may have obstructive sleep apnea, what's them to stop from saying other conditions are possible precursors for some people to force you to have extra tests for which you have no other symptoms? Indicative of needing those tests, yeah. So it's it's one of those, uh, you know. I didn't say
0: anything when they came for the uh, whatevers. So uh,
1: I I you know. Tupper put that on Facebook. I I didn't, I didn't say anything when they came for the fat people because I wasn't fat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So,
2: yeah. So, anyways, um, it's a skating rink at an angle, and what is that? A slippery slope. There you go. There you go.
0: That's Dave Higdon. Dave's an aviation photographer, aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft
2: Sales Magazine. You been working on anything fun, David? uh yeah working on a piece for world aircraft sales it'll be out here in a couple of weeks it talks about uh methods for minimizing your fuel bill well that's a good thing
1: yeah oh well, yeah yeah yep don't 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 turn on the loud switch <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right.
0: yeah. <laughs> keep it down to nine not eleven uh right. and uh so
2: uh where can people find you on the internet in general david oh g a buyer dot com uh a e a dot net uh or just you know do a google search through a rock and see what fascinating and weird things you might come up with yeah.
0: And Jeff Birdside is a—I uh, I really did say burn spit side. it out. No, no, it was, was, uh, was a little sinus thing here. It's not Birdside; it's Burnside, uh, uh, like like in the general. Um, is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving or the or the bourbon whiskey, depending on your your sensibilities. Serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. What are you working on, Jeff? I'm sorry. You want me to redo that old thing? You <laughs> no, want me I to start from I, scratch. No, and- <laughs> no,
1: because because I think that should be out there, okay, for posterity. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Right. <laughs> what are you been working on, Jim? You're, you're going
1: to go down that path. You've got to get to the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, just put to bed the uh, January yeah. 2014. Woohoo! Ooh, it's already 2014 it in is. some places. Um, I- issue of aviation safety, a uh, very good issue. Uh, very happy with it. Um, looking forward to uh, taking some time off and tackling some projects around the house looking forward also to kind of get back into the swing of things on some other projects that i've kind of had to let slide for one reason or another um uh writer's block being uh, a major problem lately for me anyway but um uh and maybe some you know might might not uh uh, well you might never know where uh, i might pop up next but uh um, but if so, one is trying to keep track of such things, where on the internet would they be looking? Well, magazine dot com is a great place to start. Aea dot net's another one. Uh, JeBurnside dot com, although you know that's I don't know. I shouldn't even talk about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, and, and and the Facebook and the Twitter machines.
0: Yeah, and on the Twitter, you're Burnside J, right? That and, is correct. And mundo. David, on the, on the Twitter, you're real Higdon. That's real. Yeah. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, you can check out my, uh, Kindle eBooks, uh, uh on, uh, on amazon.com. Uh, you can go there at, uh, amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson for information about, uh, my growing series of, uh, of Kindle eBooks. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at, uh, Jack Hodgson is my Twitter name, uh, my Twitter handle, my Twitter, I don't know what they call them. There must be a name for it. Um, my way- Twitter, wink. Way- no, anyways, um, you can visit my personal blog for lots of uh, uh, miscellaneous stuff. That's uh, uh, You can. I've also been blogging at uh, aroundthefield.net a little bit these days as well, so you can check out all those things. Um, and uh, you can join my email newsletter um, by going to uh, uh, either jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. There's a little link there where you can uh, subscribe to my email newsletter. Um, so that's it. Uh, Am I on that list? I don't know, are you? It's easy for you to I, do. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I,
1: I, I, I thought you, maybe you would have just had a you know, professional No, no, no. no actually, something.
0: I'm using this – no, no. Actually, I use this, I use this uh, email uh, – actually, we use it for the – we don't send very much to it, but the UCAP list is also managed through this email service that very, has very strict rules about, uh, about <clears throat> uh, adding um, people's names to the list without their permission it's uh, because you 're not supposed to spam them how would how would they know they wouldn't but it's in the honor system you know and uh, i I choose to abide by that those rules most of the time. <laughs> hey, big thanks to Jeff Ward for all his help with the show notes and uh, and he'll continue to help us in the forums if I can ever get them put back together again. What a mess um, don 't forget to uh, by the way, if you want to communicate with us in the meantime while the forums are down, um, you can still send us email at podcast um, at uncontrolledairspace dot Don't forget to check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly. Well, that's on the forums, but not right now. You can check out the New Ratings webpage of fame and much, much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com.
2: David, what were you going to say? Live old like Santa Claus. I mean, who else has that kind of airtime? It proves my point. Time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. That's enough talking. Let's
0: go
1: flying. Jack, did you break the forums?
0: you did, (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.